Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 100. I think the approach that I've taken and, you know, maybe it's as simple to sum up, you know, my philosophy in general is just, you know, human first and athlete second. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we are joined by Molly Benetti, the head women's basketball strength and conditioning coach at the University of South Carolina. Uh, Molly, I've heard you speak a few times over the past year on leadership and other topics, but I think more importantly, whenever your name has come up in conversation with other coaches, um, everybody's like, man, she's awesome. You got to get her on the podcast. So really excited to have you on today. Thanks, Eric. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And I know you and I haven't met, but we've crossed paths through various, you know, events, like you said, over the course of the past year. So I'm excited to get to chat with you a little bit today and get to know you more. And again, really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So, um, you know, this one more thing here, we, this is the hundredth episode of the NSCA coaching podcast and, um, thought it'd be great to bring back former host, uh, of the podcast, Scott Caulfield with us. So we have Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate, uh, being involved, especially given the well, one, given the 100th episode, but two, given that it's Molly, who's a friend of mine as well. So it's really neat to be involved in this for many different reasons. I appreciate it. Yeah, you guys know each other. I think it's going to be a lot of fun today, just catching up and talking shop. So um, Molly, just want to give you the chance to kind of uh, typical start to a podcast question. Just uh, take us through your journey in the field. How did you end up at South Carolina and uh, talk about your role a little bit? Yeah, of course. Uh, I want to start and just start by saying that all of us, and I think I feel comfortable speaking on behalf of the entire strength community, owe an enormous amount of gratitude to you, Scott, not only for your efforts and just improving the quality and the, and the standards of not just the NSEA, but our entire profession, um, the numerous amount of connections that you've helped foster, and just for continually push to make our profession better and hold ourselves to higher standards. So I think, you know, on behalf of all of us, I just want to start by uh, giving you a big thank you. Uh, really appreciate you and appreciate our friendship. So I'm, I'm really honored that I get to share this episode with you, um, but you're the best. So appreciate you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, and to answer your question, Eric, you know, I owe really my start to you know, strength and conditioning to Todd Smith, who is still the head strength coach at Marquette University, where I did my undergrad, but I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life or knew that strength and conditioning even existed until he came and did a guest presentation in one of my classes my freshman year, and he was gracious enough. Um, I invited him to do an interview for one of my assignments, and he was nice enough. You know, I met him in the weight room, and he opened his doors to me and just said, at any point, if you want to come, check it out, volunteer, observe, whatever it is, the doors open. And I think the next morning at, you know, 5.30 a.m., I showed up, had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I was absolutely enamored by his presentation and also just by watching him coach and seeing that environment. And I just kept showing up. And my entire freshman year, sophomore year just came anytime I was not in class or at work. And that turned into an, an unpaid internship my junior year. And then by the end of my junior year, he was he found a way to pay me 
as a student assistant. Uh, I think it was $8 an hour. And again, anytime I was free, I was in there. My senior year was in there as well. And, um, you know, I, I made that decision because of him and getting to learn from him and his wife, Maggie, who was really my first exposure to a female strength and conditioning coach. Um, I decided then that my goal was to be a division one collegiate strength coach. And so I pursued an opportunity to do an internship at uh, what was Athletes Performance, which is now Exos, uh, down in Phoenix, and did that and got exposure to a wide range of athletes and experiences and came back and did my master's at Minnesota. I interned uh, with Cal and, and uh, Sarah Wiley and a bunch of other people while I was there. And uh, through my connections that I made and, and I guess just putting myself in a position, um, I ended up getting, you know, what I set out to be my goal. And I was a division one strength coach at the age of 23. And I had no idea what the heck I was doing, but it's something that I've just continued to kind of ride the wave and pursue and go after the best opportunities that I can. And, you know, now I found myself, this is my eighth full-time year and I'm in my third year at university of South Carolina working uh, directly as a head of women's basketball and uh, you know, in a position that truly is a dream position. Um, and it's just really been through a combination of being able to connect with the right people and put myself in a position to be successful and just pursue and not be afraid to pursue opportunities that have come my way and just have kind of uh, rode the wave and has, you know, seeing where it takes me. That's awesome. You know, and, and just to go back on a couple of things you said, you know, you, uh, you mentioned, you know, just the contributions that uh, Scott has had to this field. And, um, you know, I can speak to that personally, him and I go back, uh, it's sort of, it's funny thinking about it now that we both are from Vermont and we met, you know, years ago and, uh, have progressed separately through the field all these years and just to be able to stay connected. But, um, I think one thing, and, you know, this podcast is proof of it, just the amount of communication that goes on in the field. Uh, today versus maybe when we started. And it speaks to your, uh, your path into this. You know, you had somebody that really just opened the door of this is a viable career path for you to pursue. And uh, it, I think everybody has that, that story or, or some experience that brings them towards the field. So I think it's, uh, it's really great, you know, that the different ways that people learn about our profession, but just, it's also, I think, really important to recognize how far we've come in terms of just how connected we are and how, uh, you know, how open we are to sharing this path and just the positives that, um, that are a part of this profession. So, so for sure. for, from me, you know, thank you, Scott, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to give you the chance to ask some questions here too. bring you back into your old podcast days. Yeah, no, I know. <clears throat> I appreciate it. I know, um, you know, I think like Molly, I was fortunate enough to have some good mentors and people that point you in the right direction. Um, I think through, you know, I met Molly through friends as well, Megan Young, Katie Fowler, the people that I, you know, hung out with. And I think that's, that's an important aspect of it is like, just the amount, you know, that, and I had met some of those friends just like through NSCA events, um, you know, very just kind of you're at a conference and, or, you know, or it was at the CSCCA conference potentially as well. And that was always fun too for me because I didn't have to work there. So I got to just hang out, you know, and 
I would always joke around that, you know, I was the easiest one to find because I was the only person wearing an NSCA shirt. Um, but, <laughs> and you, know, and I, you had the biggest biceps. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Tightest shirt. Tight, tight shirt. <laughs> That's what Dan McKim would say. Tight shirt award winner. Um, but no, you know, Molly, too, I think, you know, you you have gotten this premier, you know, basketball job. Like, do you, and I think, you know, we see people kind of specialized now. Did did you set out that you always wanted to work with basketball or did that just kind of come as a product as you worked along through the field? Uh, a little bit of both, to be honest. You know, I got exposed to basketball, both men's and women's when I was an undergrad. I played basketball my whole life. I always had an affinity for it. Um, and it when I started out and actually you know, I'm going to tell a quick story after, but when I started out at, at Purdue, that was my first position. I worked with seven or eight different teams and kind of had a hand in everything, but I also tried to be around basketball as much as I could. And when I left after a year, I pursued an opportunity at the University of Louisville. Uh, it was uh, partly for the opportunity to learn under Tina Murray, again, another incredible female mentor and someone that really helped me navigate my career and also because the position was assisting her with women's basketball and then also having softball and volleyball and tennis, which were, you know, all sports that I also really enjoyed working with. And throughout my four years there, I knew at some point in my career that I wanted to explore the basketball only route uh, for several reasons. And this position, obviously I'm, you know, connected with Katie Fowler. This position was available or open after my third year at Louisville. And I just wasn't uh, in a place where I really felt like I wanted to explore that and, and interview for it. And I just felt like I was still growing and in a place where I really enjoyed the position that I was in. And fast forward a year and the position comes open again. And I knew, again, that if I wanted to pursue basketball, there was really no better opportunity than to go down to Columbia and work for a Hall of Fame head coach, obviously a very successful program coming off of a national championship and it was really an opportunity for me to kind of take everything that I've learned and create and build something of my own and also a chance to work for one of the premier basketball programs in the country. And so um, it was something that I always knew I kind of wanted to explore. And then each year in my career, as I progressed, I, I knew that I was going to take a chance, not really knowing if that was exactly the route that I wanted to wanted to take. But I knew if I didn't go after it, I wouldn't know either way. So you know, fortunately, kind of the chips fell in in my favor. And, uh, you know, I'm in a position that I, I really love. When I've heard you um, share uh, and, and speak, you know, I love that you're uh, not afraid to tackle some of the challenging topics in our field. Um, leadership topics have been, you know, evolving in in college sports and in uh, strength and conditioning for a number of years now, but, you know, heard you speak recently to some of the stereotypes that are placed on strength and conditioning coaches and how that, how that sets us back. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to share just your journey in, in navigating uh, some of those challenges as, you know, you are the current generation of college strength and conditioning coach, taking us forward, uh, laying a better landscape for future coaches. I just want to give you a chance to share on that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I actually want to start by telling a quick story because I think one of the challenges for all of us is that we don't 
really learn and we're not taught how to navigate our careers as strength and conditioning coaches. And our profession is still so young. And so many of the faces and, and the names that, you know, the, the shoulders that we stand on are still in the field and um, we're still evolving. But I remember when I was interviewing for my very first position and this was, um, so I went down to Hootie's conference at Kansas my, when I was a grad student and I didn't know a single soul. Uh, you know, I drove from Minnesota down to Kansas, you know, whatever it was, seven or eight hours by myself. And I was in the process of interviewing for a job at Purdue. And I was there. And I, part of the reason I went was because I was going to have an opportunity to meet the director and talk in person and kind of go through that. And so when I was down there, uh, I think it was the first night, um, you know, Megan Young was there. Katie Fowler was also there. That's the night that I met them both. But I remember uh, Megan, I knew who she was because I'd heard her, heard her speak. You know, she was a prominent female figure in our field and she just walked straight up to me and introduced herself and we became friends right off the bat. And it wasn't until later that I found out that the director at Purdue had talked with Megan and asked her if she knew me and asking him questions about me and, you know, if I was suited for the position and her not knowing me at all, talked me up said I was the best candidate for the job. And it was because she wanted to promote and help women get a foot in the door in our industry. And I remember that being the Kickstarter in my career, but also it really gave me, goes back to what we talked about before. We don't learn how to navigate our careers other than through the conversations and the connections that we make with other people that help us navigate our careers. And so as I've gone through this journey, you know, we walk into it and we all learn from mentors and we learn from people that have done it before us. And before we truly know who we are, we resort to mimicking and trying to be like the people that we learn from. And it isn't until we grow and really figure out who we are as people. And I'm not talking about just as a coach, but really just as individuals and can really form our own beliefs and values and attitudes. You know, we are constantly blending this, this mix of, being a little bit like this person and doing a little bit of that. And for me, I really struggled with that, especially within the first few years of the, of being a coach, because I felt like I was being somebody that just wasn't true to who I was. And it kind of came from this, these perceptions and this idea of what it meant to be a strength coach and, and what it is that we do and the value that we provide. And I really found myself trying to uh, emulate, especially working for one of the strongest women in the field, trying to emulate my boss. And we are very, very different people and, you know, similar in a lot of ways, but um, I really struggled to really find my footing and find my voice. And, um, you know, it's a, it was a combination of trying to just be somebody that I'm not trying to kind of fit into these shoes of what I am supposed to think and feel and say and do. And, you know, each year, and especially I would say in the last three years in particular, when I first got to South Carolina, it was more of the same for me, really trying to come in and you know, be this authoritative figure and put my foot down and try to almost just be a hard ass and kind of fit into some of these stereotypes that, you know, our, you know, our coaches have about us and the outsiders have about us. And it's just has always led to a lot of frustration for me and a lot of, um, you know, this, this cognitive dissonance. I talk about this a lot, just like this, this, you know, bashing between, you know, these ideas and, and things that I'm supposed to believe versus what I actually believe in and who I am. And so 
I think the most important lesson that I've learned is that it doesn't have to look a certain way and I don't have to fit into a certain mold and I'm most effective and I find the most joy in coaching when I'm authentic to who I am and the relationships with my athletes and my coaches and administrators and honestly just anybody in my life have grown so much just from having the courage to maybe be a little bit different than what you know, the, the industry says that we should be, or maybe being a little bit different than those that came before me. And so it's a, it's a never ending journey. It's a journey that I still battle and, and still work through, but I'm in a place now where I'm, I'm so comfortable in my own skin as a, a person and as a coach. And I think that really shines through and in return, I think I'm, you know, f- I finally have hit my stride in my career and, and finally making the impact and um, having the influence that I always set out to do. That is so interesting to think about it that way, because we are a young profession in a lot of ways. And while our scope of practice and our uh, the disciplines of strength and conditioning have been around for a while, and we can go into the reps and the sets and the science, you know, I can think back to I can think back to a lot of areas where I feel like the current growth of our field in the last twenty years is solely because we've become more professional as a field. We show up and we, we know how to present ourselves, and we've bucked that stigma of kind of that old meathead strength coach mentality that's, that's out there. And, um, I know from my background in professional baseball, that was, that was huge to overcome that. You know, there was a time when baseball strength and conditioning wasn't even, oh, that's not even like real strength and conditioning. That's like, you're just kind of catering to these egos or whatever, whatever it was. And that's come a long way, but there are so many tracks and opportunities in our field now. And I think it's important. We recognize that professionalism is probably the number one reason for that. And, uh, I love that you speak to your, you know, your journey as well, because we get into this field so young, right. And we don't have it all figured out, you know, like we, (laughs) and we're, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And we're like in this position of giving advice to college students and, and people who at times probably give us way too much credit for our, our life experience, you know, and, um, and we're figuring things out too. And and so I think that's really valuable. Um, sure. I would, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear, I would love both of your perspectives. You know, I think, you almost go through this pendulum uh, shift or swing throughout the course of your career, right? When you first start out, I mean, all you're really taught is the the science and, you know, how to write a program, uh, how to monitor, how to do all these things. Uh, but nobody teaches you how to coach. Nobody teaches you, like we talked about before, how to navigate your career. So when you start out, all you care about is really the training. And don't get me wrong, some people truly get into the field because training is the part that they really love. And, you know, I think there's, you know, the majority of us get in it, you know, at the heart of it, we love people. And, you know, I, re- I think about the eight years I've been in it and probably the first three or four, you're so laser focused on writing the best program, making sure your athletes are as physically prepared as possible. But then you really come to the realization that that's really like the 5% of what we do. And maybe, you know, the importance of it don't get me wrong. It's, you can't be negligent, but it's not, it's not hard. It doesn't, you know, it becomes pretty easy to write a program and make sure that your athletes are taken care of. But, you know, the 95% of it is, 
is the people and how we build relationships and not just with our, our student athletes, but again, how do we, how do we not prove, but provide more value outside of the four walls of the weight room? How do we build better relationships with our coaches, our administration, you know, whatever outside community. And so you almost shift from, you know, the science to, okay, now we've, we know how important people are. And so, and that's what I think is hard is because we don't have necessarily the resources to help us guide that. And, you know, I just, I guess I would be curious in your, both of your experiences, maybe Scott, you particularly too, having been and seen the growth of the NSCA, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And is that, has that been true for you? And how do we accommodate for that and maybe help provide resources? Because, you know, it really is about human behavior and, and connection and communication. And how do we provide help in those areas? Yeah, I think too, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get into this when I was young. I appreciate Eric thinking of me as young too, but um, I, I was, I think I was, uh, you know, cause I had gone to college and been a poor student, went in the military and got back to school. I don't, I didn't really start working until I was 33 or 30. I think my first actual college experience was around 35. Um, so definitely a different career path. You know, I, the one thing that I will say that translates and transfers over is I coached first job I ever had at a high school was coaching basketball at a basketball camp. I was a camp counselor two summers, probably the best job actually I ever had. Um, just coach kids all day and then played pickup uh, all night with the other coaches and then drank for a couple hours after that and then did it all again. Um, but like but that coaching, you know, my mom was a basketball coach, so I was getting drugged around to the gym uh, as a little kid all the time. So it was kind of like, I just saw, you know, again, a lot of what I learned from coaching was seeing other people do it and then getting experience in coaching basketball when strength and conditioning kind of came into my life through the military for my own personal self and, and seeing the application to sports, like realizing that could be a profession and then seeking out some people that I wanted to be like. But no, I mean, you know, the opportunity to go to the NSCA headquarters um, was really huge. And, and you know, that, um, you know, some people have probably heard me say this, that wasn't like, that wasn't the holy grail. Like I, I you know, I took that job and then I got there and, and me and a couple of my good close friends still, Kevin Cronin and Jason Dudley guys that were there at the time, we were sitting in these cubes in the education department wearing a, you know, business casual every day saying, what did we do? Like we were only coaching a few hours a week. Um, and again, you know, experience and, and it, and it, all of that came into play, you know, I was lucky enough to get into the full-time uh, performance center and coaching education manager role pretty quick. But I did, I noticed the gap that there was, that no one's really talking about coaching. We talk about X's and O's 100% and science, science, science. And, and yes, that's the foundation of principles, but you know, that's why I've been on that coaching philosophy rant for, you know, for lack of a better term for the last four years or so. And, and you know, thankful for Dr. Garrity and the, the DU master's program that gave me, you know, the kind of the push and the, and the experience to look down those, those um, areas and say, yeah, well, 
everybody knows you're supposed to have a coaching philosophy and, and nobody that I really pretty much nobody knows how to do that or what it actually means and, and why self-reflection is important and evaluating your program and why your core values need to be, you know, things that you stand for and represent and that your athletes should learn from that. You know, you made me laugh when you were talking too, because I thought about like one of my first experiences with Dartmouth football and, and, and the football coach especially was there, was adamant and I love him to death. Still a good friend of mine. I ran into him at DIA uh, a, a year ago and, and we're, we hit it off. Like we've, you know, been friends since, but he was like, you got to yell, you got to yell, you know, you got to yell more. And, and it was actually easy because the music was insanely loud. Like if you had an Apple watch, it would probably be alarming, like that it was too high. Um, but I was like, oh my God, like, I don't, I'm not a yeller. Like, this is not, I can't do this. This isn't me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I obviously was able to survive that. And I realized, you know, after a getting some other teams that, oh, wait, I don't necessarily have to yell all the time. And, and, I, and I was super uncomfortable doing it. And I'm like, this isn't me. I, if this, if I have to yell all the time, I'm going to have to find yeah. another job. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, and then the music turns off and you're, you're at the top of your lungs. And, <laughs> and, you know, one thing that helped me a lot in my early years was I was, and I, I felt like I had a good grasp of this and I'm not sure really where it came from, but uh, I knew that strength and conditioning was new on the scene in a lot of ways. Um, for example, in, in professional baseball, athletic trainers would take players to the gym and uh, run, manage the team travel and do um, pretty much all the ancillary responsibilities outside of, you know, taping ankles and, and things that athletic trainers do. And it got to the point where their workload grew and uh, they couldn't manage just being out on the line for stretch every day or going in the morning to uh, take guys to the gym. And so that brought an opportunity for a new position to be added. And that was really strength and conditioning getting added to professional baseball on a larger scale. So when I think of the value we provide, there's obviously a context to how we've been introduced to our institution, but it's, it's largely based on, I mean, you know, when you're in a director level, you know, Scott, like, you know, you're dealing with budgets, you're dealing with, you know, positions just don't emerge be you know out of thin air like there's some strategy and thought that needs to go into those and so um, it largely is going to be based on the number of resources that you want to provide and we want to do as much as we can for our athletes I think every athletic program does but you know based on the resources of a program uh, that's going to look a lot different so one thing I've always realized is that there are a lot of different roles within this profession. You know, I think back to, you know, I played college football and uh, had this realization recently when I was talking to uh, someone with a volleyball and just different, you know, smaller team background. I think when you play college football and you're on a team with a hundred, hundred guys and uh, you you don't expect to have as much, you know, TLC and, and just connection with your individual coaches as you would on a, 
on a basketball team. I think there's, and maybe that's the sport in a way. And so that really wasn't, um, you know, the soft skills of coaching and the things we talk about today. Uh, it took a little while for those relationships to develop within the sport of football, you know, and, but football staffs have grown. I think all of our performance staffs have grown. Um, but when I think of the value of what a strength and conditioning provides, and we, we can look to a number of coaches in the field, you know, we're an additional resource and we're an educated resource. And we bring, we bring a lot of value and context beyond the scope of strength and conditioning. Uh, and that's extremely valuable to our institutions. It's sometimes it's a tough sell and, uh, you know, Scott, Scott and I can probably joke from, from our NSCA roles, you know, these are, you know, these are sort of office jobs where we, uh, where we do a lot of marketing and have conversations, uh, uh that are outside the scope, but, it, but it's like this strength and conditioning coach skill set, we really, uh, become well-versed in a lot of areas. Uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, we, we have to sell and promote our programs all the time to administrators, to athletes, to players and build those connections and, and just the value of creating buy-in, uh, that doesn't just serve the weight room. If we do it right, I think it serves our entire institution, our entire, um, it's pretty admirable. Some of the goals of our colleges, universities, uh, you know, organizations when you look at who we work for uh and sometimes we separate ourselves in the weight room and don't try to be a part of that bigger institution there's a lot of value to recognizing what's around us and so um got me thinking when you when you were saying you know what's the value you know what's the value of what we provide so that's a great question yeah you know Eric, you mentioned, you know, Molly being a leader and thought leader in some areas that brought up, you know, one thing I think that I was impressed with her recently, and I, I say recently, I don't really know when that is because the <laughs> pandemic has made that last Ten years. year feel like <laughs> seven years. Yeah. So, but I think it was in the last year, but, you know, uh, Molly, I, I do appreciate how vocal you've been about more needing to have more women involved in the field and not just in the coaching field, speaking at conferences and, and, you know, being vocal about calling out maybe some conferences here and there. Well, oh, hey, there's another lineup with eight white 40 year old males, like, you know, and, and, and I, I feel like, again, you know, it's part of, part of the way I was brought up. My mom and I were, it was a single mom. Like I was always drug around. She was a coach. I just, it was instilled in me. One of my first really first mentors in the field was Leanne Blinn. Who's She's at the best. You now. She is um, awesome. You know, amazing, super strong coach, strong uh, and physically stronger than uh, pretty much any of us, <laughs> you know, maybe all of us put together. Um, but, you know, I had sought her out to help me with strong man. And then we ended up, uh, you know, hitting off a friendship and, and I really got learned about being a, a strength coach from her. Um, so I just think, you know, giving you an opportunity is how, how do, you know, and how does the NSDA and these other organizations get more females involved? Because I mean, and, the, and we, I think we are seeing more people get into the profession, but it's also, well, how do we empower them to be 
on more podcasts and speak at conferences and, and you know, rise through the ranks to become athletic directors, et cetera. So yeah, I'd love to hear Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's hard. You know, I, I think I want more than ever for it to, you know, I think it, it started out and rightfully so it kind of had to be, okay, we have to include a token female in this, you know, conference or this lineup where we have to, you know, have a token black person or what, whatever it is. And, you know, we have to make a conscious effort and conscious choice to, you know, include a variety of people that are actually representative of, you know, who we have in the field and in the people that we serve. And, you know, it no doubt is going to continue to take a conscious effort purely for the fact that, I mean, women and minorities are outnumbered. I mean, it's minority for a reason. So, you know, I think we're at a point and, you know, because we are such a young profession, we were brought up and, you know, there were the token women that were, you know, the well-known names and the ones that kind of paved the way and were trailblazers and the ones that were being promoted and the ones that you constantly kind of heard repeatedly, you know, in different conferences and, and podcasts and whatever it might be. And like you said, we have so many more young women in the field now and, you know, they're out there and, and they want opportunities to present and speak. And I think it takes even a little bit more conscious effort now to help highlight and, and lift those people up and give them opportunities um, on big stages. And, you know, I think part of it is because of how our field has been, there are, and I know I've spoken with a lot of women that uh, don't necessarily feel like they're, they're qualified or like they're able to, you know, have a seat at the table and some of those opportunities, but and that's partly our responsibility is we've got to be able to, you know, have the courage to, you know, say yes to an opportunity, even if it's something that we may not feel like we are ready or prepared for or deserving of. Um, it's saying yes to those opportunities. And I think it's also, you know, really making a conscious effort to kind of go outside of, of the, uh, you know, first layer of women that we know and that we've heard repeatedly. And how can we use our network to find someone that maybe you haven't necessarily heard of, but, you know, somebody in your network has, and how can we give them an opportunity and put them in the spotlight? And then, you know, I think the women in this field do an incredible job of promoting each other and lifting each other up and empowering each other and, and giving each other the spotlight that, that we deserve. And it take, it's going to continue to take male advocates and, and people that, you know, have a seat at the table you know, it is, I think we're seeing more female, but still it's typically more men that are in the positions to make these decisions and, and put these clinics or these podcasts or whatever it is together. Um, and it, it's going to take their, their advocacy to help promote. And, you know, it's something that is, is growing and it's evolving. And I see people making a conscious effort and, and I know that's appreciated. So I think there's a responsibility on both parts, both on you know, those that have already have a seat at the table. And then it's also on us to say yes to having a seat at those same tables and being in those conversations and, and knowing that we are just as, um, you know, deserved and we are just as capable and qualified to be um, able to share space and to share our stories and share our ideas. I love what you said. I think, you know, there are so many personal sacrifices in this profession that it's a tough you know, there's, there's always been this natural attrition of coaches. And I think one, one thing I've been thinking about is we haven't always been the most welcoming profession in general, you know, um, think about, I mean, we all have these 
GA cleaning the weight room stories or, or just kind of go back to the beginning where, you know, just being the grunt on the staff of, you know, making sure everything was polished and out set up for the athletes. Um, and one of the things, you know, I think the, the mentality of that is, oh, we're paying our dues. This is our sacrifice. We're going to keep our head down and these head strength and conditioning coach opportunities will, will emerge from that. I think we're, we're maybe getting a little wiser in that there's a healthier way to approach this. Um, but you know, there obviously the diversity topics are, have gained so much traction in the past year. And I think it's extremely valuable to carry this momentum into positive messaging that tackles an even bigger issue for our profession is, you know, how do we bring in our, our next generation? How do we train that next generation to support diversity, but also support our athletes in a way that's welcoming and, and safe, uh, you know, not just safe under the bar, but safe mentally, emotionally. Um, and that really challenges us. That's not always the area that we're trained. Um, you know, and another thing you mentioned advocacy, you know, we largely are in, in an awareness phase of this journey. It's like, you know, I remember, uh, even in coaching education, it's, Hey, you know, you're, you know, I was fortunate to take some classes where you get in front of the group and you teach a clean or whatever it is. And, uh, it's like, okay, well, nobody, there wasn't a curriculum of how to stack this up or what to say or how to do it. You just kind of had to feel your way through it. And that largely is the experience factor of our, our role. You know, you get the, you get the curriculum, but then you have to take it and apply it and figure out what works for you. Um, but we are, I think we're, we're working towards better ways of, of messaging and communicating and welcoming new coaches into the field. And, um, but it is extremely challenging. So, um, I really liked what you shared there. Yeah, Eric, I think you bring up, I have so many thoughts running through my head, but you bring up a great point in that, you know, the bottom line is we all experience a shared humanity as, you know, as strength, as strength coaches, but just all human beings have shared experiences. And like you said, we really gravitate towards, you know, people that we know. I mean, to be honest, we were a profession founded on kind of the good old boys club and it's kind of who's in your circle and you tend to gravitate towards those people. And, you know, the cycle has kind of been repeated as to, you know, the voices that have been the loudest, but, you know, we all suffer and struggle and experience the same you know, it's feelings of, you know, whether it's insecurity and comparison and, you know, we're a profession that loves to argue about, you know, minute details of, you know, things that don't truly matter. And we're very judgmental and, you know, critical of other people in our field when in reality, we're all going through and experiencing very, very similar things. And when it comes to, you know, making ourselves and our athletes better, and when it comes to making our profession better, you know, we're really quick to, you know, pick up the next book or read the article or the podcast or whatever it is and get ourselves better at some technical aspect of, of training. But when it, 
we think about moving the needle the most, it comes to our own personal growth and some of the things that we have a really hard time uh, coming to terms with and accepting in our in ourselves. And that usually comes from you know our blind spots and just being more vulnerable with ourselves to where we really need to improve and how we can help other people improve. And also understanding that, you know, while we may not agree with someone fundamentally on, you know, whether it's how they train or how they coach, realizing that we're all in this thing together and we all want the same thing and we all have the same complaints and the same frustrations and the same, uh, you know, experiences and we can help each other out so much more. You know, if we point the finger back at ourselves first and figure out how we can grow as humans. And like you said, it's, you know, how do we create the experience? How do we make a better experience for our athletes? How do we create better perceptions of what we do? How do we provide more value in ways that, you know, people don't traditionally think of us bringing value. And, you know, it takes some really, you know, it takes some reflective work and it takes digging a little bit, but it's the work that matters. You know, it's the work that's going to continue to, you know, give people a seat at the table and make this a more diverse uh, group of, of coaches and professionals. It's going to be the ones that helps mentor the next generation at a higher level and help this field truly evolve to where we know it can and should go, you know, but, you know, we, we polarize ourselves and, you know, we like to put ourselves into categories and we like to, you know, you know, some people still, you know, they just want to train and they just want to be in a weight room and, and, you know, help people lift. And, and that's great. But we've got a lot, a lot of coaches that really want to push and be better, better humans, better people for our athletes, better, um, you know, and create a better environment and a better experience for other strength coaches going forward. And so I think, it, you know, there's so many factors involved, but we've got to do a better job of just understanding that, you know, we have a shared humanity and we are all more alike than we are different. And we can help each other out a lot more by continuing to share our stories and connect with each other and, and help each other grow in ways that, you know, traditional resources just can't. For sure. You know, one thing that unifies us on that is, you know, we all wanted to do this for a long time. We all, we all pursued this, you know, you talk about being brave and accepting opportunities you know, we knew this wasn't the highest paid profession. We knew there would be a lot of challenges. We, but we took this journey, you know, in, in hoping to make it better for the long term, for sustainability of a profession. We knew we'd have to fight that battle and navigate those challenges. Uh, but it's really on us now. It's on us now to take it forward. So, um, yeah, I, I think about this stuff a lot. I think it's, really valuable for our field to have these healthy conversations of what are we doing not just to ex expand our mind in you know in the exercise science realm but beyond that um and there are so many more opportunities that can come from this profession uh you know just by having those conversations so i really love that perspective well, I think, uh, Molly, this is unrelated to the heavy topics I was thinking about, but uh, I really want to know, <laughs> um, you know, in such a high level, high profile position, you know, that you're in and program that you're in, um, I want to know, I think I know what you'll say, 
we're the best part. I want to know what the best part about your job is, but I want to know also what the hardest part about your job. And I don't mean like putting an extra half inch on a vertical that's already 37. Like, you know, the, the stuff we don't talk about, what's the hardest part? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, the best part, there's so, I mean, there's obviously, you know, everyone always asks, you know, what is it like to be part of you know, winning culture and winning environment and what's it like to be a piece of that puzzle. And, you know, I think to walk into a program that was two years removed from a national championship, I put immense pressure on myself to come in and I had huge shoes to fill. I mean, Katie Fowler is the best of the best. And so I put so much pressure on, on myself um, to do her right, but also you know, I was now working for a Hall of Fame coach and, you know, I obviously wanted to be great. But the best part has just been seeing how, I think, different the environment, you know, a winning environment is from almost like the, the perception that we have of it. You know, it's so, it's so more relaxed and like everybody is, you know, so free to be themselves and to kind of be autonomous and support each other. And it's just like this, you're walking to an environment every day where, you know, the standard is the standard and all you have to do is be yourself and, and, you know, do, do your part and it keeps these wheels turning. And it's just been really easy to kind of come into a situation where, you know, I get to just, I get to do my job at a really high level by just being myself and I get to have a lot of fun. It's a fun environment. It's more relaxed than you would think. Now that's not to say that, you know, our standards and our, our execution isn't high, but it, it's, you know, the way to be able to experience how coach Staley coaches and uh, loves her players and, you know, how much of that, you know, I've learned from and been able to, um, you know, just take lessons from, I think is, you know, every day is, is something new and I learn something, whether it's from our coaching staff or our, or our athletes, for sure. Um, I think the hardest part is, you know, I, I, I used to think the hardest part was, you know, figuring out how to be the best strength coach ever. Now, I think the hard part is, is, you know, continuing to just be adaptable to every day and every situation and really focus in on, you know, how do I be a better person to these athletes every day? And that's hard because people are so dynamic and every day it's something different. And I think the hard part is, you know, realizing that you've got to be able to adapt and shift gears and you've got to be able to, you know, show multiple sides of, of your personality and know kind of when and where to you know, have conversations and it's just, you know, it's navigating the ins and outs of human relationships. And that's the most enjoyable part as well, but it's also the hardest because human beings are hard. So figuring out how to get the most out of, um, you know, obviously, you know, we have 18 to 22 year olds who are extremely talented and athletic and really good at basketball, but it's like, how do I get the most out of them as humans too? So they realize a part of themselves that they didn't before. And that's just, I mean, that's a never ending journey and that's, that's hard. And I think I'll add one more thing um, is, you know, kind of coming into a situation where our strength and conditioning department as a whole, uh, you know, really kind of had a different perception from our administrators and really wasn't a department that was, 
has been truly uh, valued in the past and, you know, creating relationships with our administrators and, and allowing our department to be seen um, and, and valued a little bit more, you know, that's been a journey and, um, you know, one that's, again, always evolving, but I would say those are the biggest two. It, you know, it just popped in my head, you know, you came into a pretty successful situation and you put some really big pressure on yourself to succeed. Um, but it got me thinking about, you know, from year to year, team dynamic is going to change some, it's going to evolve and we need to be dynamic professionals. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we've been so, uh, go back on like, oh, we need to have a philosophy or we need to be based on principles and we need to carry those values with us. But do you have a process from year to year of evaluating or, or thinking about your, uh, you know, how your process is going to get put uh, into play with the team that year based on the personalities and, and individuals that you have? Is that something that coaches should, should think about more? Yeah, I 100% think so. I think the approach that I've taken and, you know, maybe it, it's as simple to sum up you know, my philosophy in general is just, you know, human first and athlete second. And so I guess my process always starts with, you know, conversations with the athlete and, and on trying to get to know them as best as possible first. And that, uh, that to me, it starts with just a general, we do a, a general one-on-one -on -one, and this is for everybody at the end of, of the year. And also when everybody comes back in the summer, so it includes our, our new players and incoming freshmen transfers, whatever, and it's just a conversation about them. And to be honest, you know, I'm not afraid to ask them about their training experiences, what they like, what they don't like, what they feel like helps them. But really the conversation is more about just them and trying to understand, you know, who they are, where they've been, you know, their family situation, um, things they like to do, because I've shifted my focus more on the environment that I'm creating and the experience that they have uh, with me as a coach, but also the experience they have training in general when they're in the weight room. And I think about, you know, their, their schedules. And I think about their lifestyle as a student athlete, where everything is controlled and everything is structured. And so most of them come in. I mean, you guys have probably worked with athletes that don't inherently like the weight room. And so my process is always about, okay, how can I, connect the dots and connect with them and reach them in ways that matter to them and also create an environment where they want to be a part of it. And, you know, they have some choice and they have some say in the things that they do. And I think some coaches are afraid to do that sometimes because it, you know, we have to relinquish our control, but I found when you get to know athletes well enough and get to, uh, you know, build their trust. I think one of the things, you know, sometimes we make the mistake as coaches of, you know, we demand, that people trust us and respect us right off the bat. We just assume that because we're the coach and these athletes are coming in and training with us that they automatically need to trust us and listen to us. And that's just not the case. We've got to win them over and we've got to win their trust. We've got to win their affection and we've got to show them and have them experience that we care about them. And so that's, that's the process to me. And it's a never ending process, but the better we know our athletes and the more work we do on the front end to discover some of those things, the better environment 
and, and training atmosphere we can create for them. And when that happens, the training and all of those things, you know, comes easy, but it's, it's about that again, the, the human experience and, you know, what kind of value am I bringing to this person and how am I creating an environment that they want to be a part of where they're also maximizing their results while they're in there and also learning how to train and learning how to think for themselves and learning how to um, take care of their body so that when they leave me, they understand the process. And so it's all about, you know, a, a partnership. That's, you know, I think that's the best way to put it. It's an athlete partnership. It's not a dictatorship, you know, how can I involve them as much as I can and, and give them some say, because while the, we're the experts in training, we're not the experts on them and they may be 18 to 22 year olds, but they know a lot, a lot more than we give them credit for sometimes. So, um, I think that's something that, that we don't think about enough. You know, we think a lot about the creating the training structure and, you know, how disciplined we want our, you know, we want everyone to be on a whistle and we want everyone to be doing X, Y, and Z, but you know, what are the other factors? You know, how are we thinking about how we're structuring our communication, our language, our messaging, our, um, you know, our process for growing these people over time, not just as athletes, but as people. I like it. I think too, like that's talking about like, you know, building leadership, right, with the athletes and giving them opportunities to, um, giving them opportunities to grow, develop, but grow to lead, you know, and I say that to a lot of, a lot of our coaches here sometimes, and I'm like, you know, look, if you need me to run a 10 minute warm up for your team, like you've got bigger fish to fry, you know, and, and I'm and I'm not saying that I don't do warm ups, I, I 100% will. But like at the end of the day, I'm not going to be at your practice or your session and your kids who have been with me in the weight room plenty, right. And I feel like we're educating there. If they don't know how to do that at that point, then I've failed them because I'm trying to teach them the bigger picture. So you know, I think I think that sometimes coaches, strength coaches get too wound up, right? With that whistle and that line, that control and like having our thumb on top of every aspect and like, how are they going to learn to be leaders and, and develop, you know? I mean, not going to be just from getting to choose what we say uh, on one, two, three, go, you know? Like, so yeah, I think you have to give them opportunities and I feel there's a lot of opportunity in the weight room where you can put them in charge and let them have that. For sure. I couldn't agree more. You know, just a thought, you know, leadership as a term, you know, when you look at it historically or, you know, in, in the grand scale of things means a lot of different things, but, you know, you're speaking to empowerment and that's something I think we all understand and we all understand, all connect with of, our role is to empower uh, young men and young women towards brighter futures. Um, and that goes way beyond our role uh, just to make them stronger, just to make them perform on the court or on the field. And um, it's, it's really great for us to, to talk about this. Um, you know, this is a question I'm, I'm stealing from uh, Scott's old script here, but I think we ask it a lot on this podcast because we have a lot of young coaches just getting into the field who listen in um, on these episodes. And, you know, what advice for young and aspiring strength and conditioning coaches do you have uh, just given all the things we've talked about today? And, and, you know, if you were starting the field over, what do you wish you knew? Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, I think first it would be to, to seek out people who are doing what you think you want to do. You might not have a full understanding of what it is, but you know, if it's a young female strength and conditioning coach, seek out women in the field that are doing it already, or, you know, regardless of who you are, seek out people who are doing it at a really high level and try to build a a relationship with them. You know, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I heard about, you know, because when you're younger, especially in school or you're just starting out, you talk, people talk about the importance of your network and people sometimes mistake that for, you know, introducing yourself or knowing a huge, you know, array of people. And I, I can't remember who said it, but it was, you know, the quality of your relationships with those people is more important than the quantity. So it doesn't matter how many people you reach out to or to introduce yourself or to talk shop. It really doesn't matter how many people that you know, but it's what is the quality of relationship with, you know, maybe the handful of people that are going to really help you navigate and, you know, get you a job or help you navigate whatever, you know, issue you, you might be facing. So I would say to not worry about necessarily how many people you're getting in front of, but you know, the ones that you get connected with, how are you actually fostering a relationship with them and growing it and, you know, where you can both mutually benefit. And, you know, those are going to be the people that are in your corner that are going to help you throughout the course of your career. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, going back to kind of what we talked about before, it's just, you know, understand that it doesn't have to look a certain way. And the most success that you're going to have and find is when you are true to who you are and you're not afraid to follow that and and being authentic. And um, that's a hard thing to do when you're young and you're still figuring out yourself, but, you know, understanding that there's a lot of different, like we talked about before, a lot of different roles, a lot of different, you know, aspects of our job and just, you know, be who you are. And that's always going to be enough for the right environment, the right people, um, you know, in the right situation. So, you know, there's probably, I mean, there's so many more things, but I'll I'll keep it short with those. That's awesome. That's great advice right there. Um, Want to uh, give you a chance, you know, if our listeners want to reach out and get connected with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can reach me by email or, or by social media. I'm, you know, active on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my Twitter handle is just at Coach Benetti. Uh, if you don't know how to spell that, uh, B-I-N-E-T-T-I. But uh, on Instagram, mbenetti22. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, my email is on our university website. Um, you know, I'll be honest, I'll probably, I'm probably better at responding on social media than I am to email, but any of those uh, are valid options. Awesome. And, uh, and Scott, I'll give you an opportunity to share your, uh, your contact info, even though I think, uh, we all know we can find Scott on Instagram pretty regularly, uh, posting some things out there, quite a following and, uh, you know, well-deserved just with all the great work he's done for the profession. So I'm really happy that we had you on as well today, Scott, just hundred episodes. You really did all the work and I came in for season four and get to, uh, you know, catch the alley-oop and take it home. But yeah, man, how, how can our listeners get in touch? Again, appreciate you guys having me uh, as part of this episode. It means a lot to me, especially with Molly being the guest. And uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, 
when they came to me and said, you want to do a podcast, I was like, oh, what? I don't know about that. <laughs> so it's great. And like we were sharing before we started rolling here, I think just to have you step in and fresh eyes, fresh, you know, uh, different perspective. It's awesome to see the direction that you guys are going. And I'm just glad, you know, that was a big plus for me leaving the NSCA was still being involved. You know, I'm super glad that I can be involved in a different way now and and hopefully promote that to other people that like no that you're this is your organization and you need to stay involved and you need to get involved and you need to run for committees and get on advisory boards and you know do do what you can and yeah it's going to be volunteer but you know it's it's worth it at the end of the day and you never know what those things lead to you never know what who you're going to meet or where that's going to come from um, and I think that's huge. Um, yeah, like you said, I spend way too much time on Instagram uh, at Coach Caulfield. So check check it out there if you haven't. Um, but I really look forward to hopefully sans pandemic, seeing people in person again at some events. So let's get the NSCA working on that. <laughs> let's go. All right, man. All right. Yeah, we're working on it for national, um, you know, full speed ahead right now. We're doing the best we can to have a live event. So really excited that that's a possibility, you know, to all our, all our listeners, you know, two great resources here uh, in the field of strength and conditioning. Uh, very thankful to, uh, to you both being on today. Uh, we appreciate everyone tuning in. And we'd also like to thank Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community, so follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to NSCA.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.